Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Howling Coyote. And I'm privileged to have some researchers from Lancaster University Department of Psychology, Elise Osterhaus and Helen Nuttle. And um, I came across their paper on, uh, it's called Toward an Understanding of Healthy Cognitive Aging. And um, the context wherein I found them was that I was uh, working on a computer simulation model and comparing some theories of aging. And I, I came upon their work and I thought, wow, this would be a fun podcast to have. So, um, uh, uh, Elise, would you mind kicking us off and, and telling us about the work that you've been doing um, for your for your graduate degree? Mm-hmm. Sure. Thank you very much. So um, the paper you were talking about, um, we recently published that in Gerontology's uh, journal. And um, basically, we discuss different cognitive aging theories where we look at like um, what, like where we discuss um, mechanisms of healthy cognitive aging um, and like how do we age healthily and um, like why do some people develop dementia um, and cognitive difficulties whilst others don't. Um, and basically, we discuss two main theories. Um, one is cognitive reserve, which basically states that. Um, that like throughout our life, our lifestyle experiences, such as like whether we attend education or not, but also our lifestyle choices, such as like whether we engage in social activities, cognitively stimulating activities and um, leisure activities, etc. Um, like whether the basically the theory says like the, these kind of experiences and lifestyles, they help us build this kind of reserve that then helps us later on in life when um, our brain like um, like experiences normal age-related pathology and stuff um it then helps us like remain or maintain our cognitive performance um even though we have this um age-related pathology um and then another theory um one of the other main theories we we discuss is the scaffolding theory um the scaffolding theory of aging and cognition um which basically takes a more multifaceted approach so um, they also include like lifestyle and life experiences, but also more adverse um, adverse experiences or um, such as they include genetic uh, predisposure, toxin exposure, but also like things like depression um, and how that influences our brain structure and brain function. And then um, also how that then relates to our the age-related cognitive decline that we experience and um, how we can maintain our cognitive ability um at a later age um yeah and we basically compare these two theories and discuss their similarities and differences and also like where there's still like some gaps to um to like be filled with pre- uh, future research yeah yeah and um to me to me it seemed rather obvious that the more factors that one considers the more the better model one has. So um, why wouldn't everybody run for the scaffolding model? I think there, so when when doing research, we hope, we try to take as many factors in account as possible. Um, but obviously like doing that also, we need a bigger and bigger, bigger sample size. So sometimes going for the like more simple model like can still tell us a lot about aging and cognitive aging um but also um like cognitive reserve tells like is also a lot focused on um, neurodegenerative diseases like dementia and parkinson's whilst um the scaffolding theory of aging and cognition is um they do mention like um the adverse effect of like um um, like tau pathology and stuff, but they don't. They are not really um, that much focused on degenerative neurodegenerative diseases. So in that way, I think the cognitive reserve theory is a bit stronger, um, and the scaffolding theory can like uh, improve a little bit more. Um, I don't know. Maybe Helen has more to add to that as well. 
I think that's a, a, a really, a really great point. At least, no, I, I support um, what you say. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, um, you know, in, in relation to this, um, I was recently at the Alzheimer's disease conference in Gerdeberg, and I was impressed with the amount of money that was going into drug development. And um, I was off in the corner with the people talking about preventing dementia through lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And we were a pitifully poor bunch compared to the, the glory and grandeur of the biomarker, find the perfect drug people. And um, I wondered, I just wondered if, if you had any thoughts about the whole, the whole field in that respect, you know, where, where people are focusing and, and where the resources are going. Um, I don't really know much about the pharmacological industry and like the research they do and that's on that side. Um, but I do reckon like some people don't like, even though they might live like a healthy life, like they don't smoke, they're not obese, they like physically active and stuff. Sometimes people still develop, uh, like some condition under degenerative disease and maybe like in that case, medication can help, um, like maybe medication can help like our brain function as well um where like our lifestyle and stuff falls short um i don't know <laughs> do you have do you, yeah do you and have, i think yeah. um, just just to add add to that as well um from a behavior change perspective sometimes it's easier for people to accept um a medication than it is to accept a, what they perceive to be a significant change to their lifestyle so we know that exercise can be a, a brilliant um treatment if you like for mental health um challenges but it's often very difficult um to encourage people to take up something like that compared to encouraging them to uh, consider a, a pharmaceutical intervention so I think it also relates to how willing people are to embrace these different types of interventions and the uh, quality, the perceived quality of the clinical intervention from the recipient's perspective, perhaps as well. Mm -hmm. We certainly see that people people prefer pills. People prefer the quick and easy solution to the slow and maybe more difficult solution yeah i think probably like with with for example physical activity and um like engaging in more cognitively stimulating activity like reading books or playing a musical instrument or learning a language it takes like kind of a lot of effort and i think it probably requires some kind of change like a whole lifestyle change almost and like formation of habit which we know can take like several weeks um so compared to like that's like a quite a long change before that happens whilst like with medication can almost be immediate i reckon yeah except except there aren't any medications that actually work so there's that problem and uh, unless unless something has changed in the last month but there's a lot of enthusiasm of course yeah, I think that there's a, an awful lot of enthusiasm for Alzheimer's and dementia drugs, but there's there's not a whole amount of promise in terms of what the market has. So I'm not an expert, but that seems to be the the way things are at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought maybe I, I could put up one of your diagrams, and and I'm I'm guessing that a lot of people who will be listening to this. Um, for many people, this is all new. And I thought um, maybe if I put up one of the diagrams, you guys could could explain it is, you know, for the for people who don't who don't know this field at all. Mm -hmm. And so let me do that. Yeah, uh, a lovely idea. Let's see, always a challenge to find things on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, here we go. Here we go. There we go. I like this. So, Elise, could you, for the people who, who never heard of any of this ever before in their whole lives, could you could you explain it? Yes. So this is actually the uh, diagram of the scaffolding theory of theory of cognitive aging. So the more the the one that takes a more like um, comprehensive approach. So um, like on the right hand side, we see the level of cognitive function and the rate of cognitive decline. So this can be like age related, um, but even like neurodegenerative related. Um, so on the left hand side, we have our life course experiences. Um, and these are split uh, up in two. Those are the neural resource enrichment ones, which are like the positive factors that influence our like cognitive function later in life. And then um, you can think of like intellectual engagement, like reading a book, um, education, um, physical activity, learning multiple languages. Um, and then there is also um, the neural resource depletion, which is more the adverse factors that can influence our cognition later in life. Um, and here we see, um, well, stress is one, um, the like cell pathology, APOE, APO, APO, um, that's like uh, very common in, in Alzheimer's. Um, and then even low socioeconomic status, depression um, and toxin exposure, as I mentioned before as well. And these two, um, and then we also have our normal biological aging. So that's like the brain pathology that happens like um and that's like normal with aging that that we all experience um so and these positive and negative lifestyle factors then feed kind of into our uh, brain structure and brain function uh, and with brain structure we can think about like um, for example cortical uh, thinning um or thickness in general um and dopaminergic activity and dopamine is very important for like rewards um habit formation but also like for movement um for example um and then there's brain function um this is more like the brain areas that lit up when we perform certain cognitive tasks uh, but also like the way different brain areas communicate with each other um so basically neural resource depletion can negatively influence brain structure for example causing cortical thinning um negatively influence brain function for example um brain regions are not that able to communicate that well with each other anymore uh, whilst then neural resource enrichment the positive factors they can then enhance like brain structure and brain function uh, in a similar way for example um they support brain activity, um, for example, by allowing multiple, uh, for example, by um, strengthening um, the communication between different brain regions. Um, but they don't only um, influence brain structure um, and brain function. They also feed into compens compensatory, well, I can't speak anymore, <laughs> compensatory scaffolding, which is basically our ability to, um, to, um, compensate for like any cognitive difficulties or any um, brain um, like brain pathology that we experience and this for example what we see in older adults for example is that like um, during during tasks during cognitive tasks they instead of recruiting one side of the brain they recruit both sides of the brain um, and um, for example um, more frontal regions um, than than like more regions in the back um they might they might also recruit different brain regions that like younger adults don't recruit during those tasks um and then let's see then there's the intervention as well that um fits into compens compensatory <laughs> scaffolding um so that means like even though like brain structure and brain function they influence compensatory scaffolding and so do the um positive and negative lifestyle factors um with intervention we can like enhance our compensatory scaffolding for example by um encouraging people to engage in social and intellectual activities um to engage in physical exercise cognitive training is one as well um and medita meditation um i think um I'm not very well versed in the meditation literature, but uh, I think there's an increasing literature in meditation that shows like some um, increased like brain activity as well in certain regions. Um, 
And then um, brain structure, brain function, they feed into the level of cognitive function and the rate of cognitive decline. For example, um, when we experience cortical thinning, we can, um, we can expect um, lower cognitive function um, as well. Yeah. So um <clears throat> I thought I thought it might interest you that I I've been working on a computer model to predict cognitive decline. And I I might make some modifications from on my model from this very diagram. And it improved prediction. <laughs> really? That's yeah. really cool. Oh wow, that's brilliant. I presented a poster I presented at the Alzheimer's disease conference that the the scaffolding theory improves prediction of cognitive mm -hmm. decline. And um, may may I ask, like, what what exactly did you like change in the model that like mm -hmm. made it improve? Um, I I built in some feedback loops mm -hmm. because I was already aware, you know. Of, these things are are sort of obvious. Mm -hmm. There's natural feedback loops here, and actually, I'm not sure that it shows on the diagram, but um, but I think this I think this arrow goes both ways. So so that there's as things get worse, they build upon themselves and they get worser. So there's a there's a a kind of a deviation amplification process at work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how uh, much benefit did it have the changes you made? It it improved the prediction by about twenty percent. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> that was good. And and I was I had this fantasy that maybe you guys had some data you could send me to plug into my computer model and I could play we could play together. So it's something to keep in mind. But um are you guys are you guys familiar with Bredesen? Do you know that name? I don't think no. I've come across it. No. So so he, he's an interesting character because he embraces this way of thinking. And um, his first paper was uh, a report of 10 people who reversed Alzheimer's disease. Well, nine out of 10 reversed Alzheimer's disease. And, and then he published a paper on 100 patients who, who over 90% reversed Alzheimer's disease. And um, and then he went commercial, <laughs> so and and set up clinics to make a lot of money reversing Alzheimer's disease, and um, and it, and it's it's really interesting because he has a protocol that addresses almost all of these areas. So so he he changes people's diets. Mm -hmm. He gives them high dose antioxidants, you know, and other nutritional factors. Yeah. He engages them in new learning. He engages them in, in socialization. He gets them to exercise, to do uh, meditation, to do um, Tai Chi and Qigong, uh, mm -hmm. to learn new stuff. It, he he says the most effective things to learn are Chinese and differential equations. <laughs> and um, so, and it's really impressive because he has PET scans of people getting rid of, of amyloid and tau burden. Um, and he's highly criticized in many circles because he doesn't do randomized control trials. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the interesting thing to me, and this is how I started getting into computer modeling of cognitive decline, is that um, 
it would take about a thousand years to do randomized control trials on all of these individual factors. And mm-hmm. as he says, what if changing one factor isn't enough? Mm-hmm. What if you have to change eight? And and the difficulty mm-hmm. for me with his protocol is that I can't find anyone to do it. And um, so he he works with people who were previously high-earning, high-functioning individuals with highly supportive families who make them do it with the motivation that they could get back to their high-status, high-functioning activities. And um, here in central Maine, uh, we don't have a lot of those kind of people. <laughs> I hope you have more. In, I'm sure you have more in Lancaster. But uh, mostly we're we're pretty rural, and um, I can't I can't get anyone to do all of this mm. stuff, and yet it to me. I mean, I disagree with the critics. I find it inspiring that that someone did it and and reversed Alzheimer's disease, even if I can't find any patients who will do it. But <clears throat> I thought I thought you might have heard of him because he 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 so targets everything on this diagram. That that yes. that work sounds familiar. I might have heard it somewhere. Yeah, but not, not. I can't really specifically remember. Yeah, but yeah, it's a very interesting approach, and I think, like you say, Lewis, it takes a very highly motivated mm. individual who has a lot to um, really gain by pursuing mm. that lifestyle overhaul. Like when we started this discussion, and we talked about um drug interventions versus lifestyle interventions you know it's same I guess some of the the reasons are are similar for why perhaps you can't find people who want to engage with that extensive mm-hmm. lifestyle overhaul because it would take a great deal of discipline and, and commitment and you mentioned about the support networks and commu- sense of community around them might not be as strong as in other groups but yeah in Lancaster we're, we're based in the northwest of England um we're not far away from from some quite rural areas, actually. Um, and in the north of England, there's greater um, kind of health inequality in, in, in a negative sense compared to in the south of England. Um, socioeconomic position is somewhat lower. Um, earning power is a bit lower. So we're, we're perhaps not as dissimilar to Maine <laughs> as you might think. Mm-hmm. Our largest city is 60,000 people mm. in the state of Maine. Mm. Right? We live, I live in near the second largest city, which is 30,000 people. So we're pretty well. But, mm-hmm. but anyway, and, and um, I've had the pleasure of, of being near Lancaster because we, we, every October, we go to Penrith in the okay. lake. Oh, nice. And this last October, we hiked the West Highland Way. Nice. Which, Very nice. Yes, it was really spectacular. So oh, you'll have to stop by in Lancaster this October. Yeah. <laughs> Usually fly into either Glasgow or Manchester. Nice. And, you know, depending on the prices and whatnot, because they're about yeah. equal. Yeah. yeah. So what's what's so what's next for you guys? What do you, what do you What's exciting your passions now? What's what's on the horizon? Elise, would you like to talk about what you're currently working on and the data you're analyzing? Sure. So um, we actually looked at um, in in another in an online study um, during COVID, we looked at like um, cognitive reserve and the effects on like um, word finding ability in older age. Um, And we found like that cognitive reserves so education lifestyle experiences that they were mainly like important in middle-aged adults but not in older adults so that was very interesting um and 
then um, I'm currently um, finalizing a paper on uh, in Parkinson's disease um, where I look at like the, the relationship between um, like words that describe physical action and like the um, motor uh, impairments in Parkinson's disease. Um, this isn't without brain data because it's also online because it was like the end of COVID. Um, and then uh, currently I've just finished data collection on um, on, an, um, on a healthy aging study where I look at um, like the underlying brain function or neurosignature of like um, also um, words that describe physical action versus words that um, don't describe physical action. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> I'm very passionate about um I'm very passionate about um brain research and brain data and um looking at that as well. And um actually, oh yeah, another study um we're finalizing is uh, one on where we look at like how with EEG data, that's like where you get a cap on your head um and with like electrodes and we then can record brain waves. Um and with certain statistical methods, you can um kind of infer. Um, how different brain regions um, communicate with each other and then um, relate that to cognition um, and how that changes with age. Um, so that can give us then like an idea of like, oh, um, does the brain function like change and how does that relate to changes in cognition in older versus younger adults? So I'm actually really, that's probably one of the papers I'm most excited about. Mm. Um, yeah. And you're also working on um, a study with me, aren't you, Elise, where we're looking at trying to entrain different brain rhythms um, in healthy aging as well. So coming from more of a um, speech and communication perspective, when people are listening to um, speech and trying to remember kind of information, does entrainment of certain brain oscillations help to support their ability to um, remember speech? Because that is something that breaks down in healthy aging um, in terms of the, the types of brain rhythms that might be supporting maintenance of information and memory. Some of those brain rhythms start to diminish. And especially if you experience age-related hearing loss, which in, is a very, very common um, situation in the UK, over 70% of individuals aged 70 and above experience um, a significant degree of age-related hearing loss. It often takes 10 years before they'll seek help through a hearing aid. Um, for them, they have even further deterioration of some of these oscillatory signatures that support the brain's ability to to understand um, incoming speech and retain it in memory. So we're we're, we're using um, transcranial magnetic stimulation to um, manipulate brain activity um, using magnetic um, influences to try to entrain some of these. EEG rhythms in the brain that are naturally kind of happening to try and boost them, if you like, to see if that can be of benefit to people when they're listening to information and retaining it in memory. So yeah, there's quite a few things going on really in the lab. Yeah, that's exciting. What? Yeah, Elise will be um, finishing up her, her thesis in summer, but we continue to work on this um, project that I just described for a few more months after that until next year. And then you'll decide, Elise, won't you, whether you wish to pursue um, a career in academia or perhaps go in different directions. The world will be our oyster and yeah. see <laughs> where, where your path takes yeah. you. Yeah. And I'm intrigued with how are how are you how are you measuring the EEG in relation to the to the magnetic stimulation? Elise, would you like to talk about about um, that? Yeah, I can tell a little bit about the protocol. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, we record the EEG data, so the brain data, whilst we're stimulating. So it's like continuous recording, and the EEG system is. Um, like it's specifically made to be compatible with TMS. Um, and um, you do have some distortions in the EEG data when the stimulation happens, um, but you know that. So like you kind of like account or you, um, your research question is around that as well. Um, so what participants do is they hear a series of nine digits and they have to remember um, those nine digits in the right order, which is obviously very, very difficult. Um, and then the stimulation happens. 
Um, and then, so they have to ignore the stimulation, but after the stimulation, they also hear either a sentence that's illegible or one that's not, that's more like noise. And they have to ignore that as well. And afterwards, they have to click the digits in the right order. And during that whole process, we record the EEG um, data. So we have like before the stimulation and after the stimulation and during the digits as well. And what area of the brain are you stimulating? So do you want to take this one? You, you, keep, you keep going, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> so we stimulate... Um, on the top of the head, the vertex, we call it, um, there's like, because there's like not a lot of brain area right under the school's like quite thick, the signal or the stimulation more like dissipates around the brain and that's more like a control condition. Then there's mm -hmm. an occipital, um, so in, at the back of the head uh, area um, that we stimulate, which I believe is more like involved in or hypothesized to be involved in like attention and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also stimulate like on the left side of the brain, um, the superior temporal gyrus, which is then more involved in auditory processing. Right. I'm, yeah. I'm familiar with the TMS treatment for depression. <clears throat> yeah, so in this, in this case, we're specifically interested in alpha frequency um, and oscillations um, that occur at an alpha frequency. So we, we find each individual's alpha frequency before they begin the study. And then we set the TMS to be delivered at the same rate as their individual alpha frequency to try and add a, a personalized element to the entrainment. And then the sort of outcome measure is the, the power of the, of the alpha um, activity and whether that's modulated by the, the TMS or not. So we'll see. <laughs> we're currently analyzing some of the data, aren't we, Elise? One of yeah. them, our collaborators is. So yeah, we, we will yeah, keep you informed. Yes, very so, excited. The mm. outcome is improved re remembrance of the nine digits. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So on the behavioral side, it would be an, an improved ability to remember those um, digits. And on the neural side, it would be observing the change in the in the power of the alpha activity, and if there's a relation between the alpha activity and and the behavioral change. And then we have the the different locations on the head to try and understand: is this a, a sensory specific uh, phenomenon in the in terms of is it being driven by changes to sensory alpha activity in temporal cortex around the auditory cortex or is it some kind of domain general process um which is represented by the the site the um and the occipital cortex to to understand it is it something that's not specific to auditory processing but a general improvement um in in a domain general sense mm. so um it might be a little too specific, but I'm I'm really curious which part of the temporal pole are you targeting? So the superior temporal gyrus. Okay. Okay. Yes. Posterior and, so posterior superior temporal yeah. gyrus. Yeah. yeah, which would be part of the default mode network, I think. Well, you know, when you think about story brain. Yes, which, yeah. And yeah, so we're, we're targeting it primarily because it's part of the um, broader auditory kind of association cortex. So it's very difficult to target primary auditory cortex because it's quite deep inside um, the cortex with regards to what TMS is, is capable of doing. So we, when we're stimulating auditory regions, we tend to go for coordinates around um, uh, superior temporal gyrus, the posterior portion. Um, to target secondary and association cortical areas. But yeah, as you mentioned, these brain areas don't just do one thing. There's connectivity that's distributed throughout different um, regions. So we'll, it's very difficult to try and answer everything in one study. And if we find that there's some interesting results, we'll have to try to, to dig down to understand what the origin of that is. Yeah. You, you remind me of a student I had once who wrote country music songs and there's a there's a neuropsychological test in which people are given 20 words to remember 
And most people remember four to six. And he got 19 because he turned the words into a country music song. Wow. Very smart. Mnemonics, right? Yeah. <laughs> a, a very good strategy. Yeah. Which is probably how the superior posterior temporal, temporal gyrus is linked into the default mode network. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He was very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> so that that sounds very cool. And um, do you th do you think there's a role for TMS in improving memory among cl a clinical population? I think they're already like doing some um, TMS studies. Um, like in clinical populations and that does seem to um, improve and like in intervention brain stimulation mm. is like um, we also mentioned that in the paper uh, brain stimulation is like one of the ways we can directly influence brain structure and function or brain function yeah, um, yeah. where I where I kind of really see neuromodulation as holding promises when it's an adjunct to another intervention to really try to help um optimize the state of the brain at the time the brain then receives the intervention if you will um so that the most benefit can be derived from the intervention um so i think applying brain stimulation in a way that an intervention can then benefit from is is a very nice direction within neuromodulation research i think sometimes people overpromise what brain stimulation can do alone without any additional um cognitive therapy or cognitive intervention or physical intervention but um i certainly think it's an avenue for for helping to assist with improved um brain function and it, we have yet to learn and I, i'm excited to to be you know working in that area and see where things go um, i think what I'm very passionate about is what factors can modulate neuroplastic potential of the brain. And I think, you know, that there might be room for brain stimulation to, to be in there. So yeah, we'll see. Yeah. It's, it certainly seems, I mean, it certainly seems preferable to ECT for depression. Really. Yeah. 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 So, much less profitable in the United States, sadly. Mm -hmm. so I hope you don't have that problem in, in the UK. Yeah, ECT is yeah a world away from magnetic stimulation, the, the TMS type. And I think often people come with some preconceptions because they've heard about ECT in films or on TV. Mm -hmm. they're, they're wondering if there are some parallels with TMS, but it's a very, very different um far more pleasant experience uh, for want of a better description um, yeah. but thankfully we we have many younger and older adults who are willing to to support our studies and we wouldn't be anywhere without their support mm -hmm. and their contribution to to you know allowing us to collect their data so we're really thankful for the openness and willingness of our participants in Lancaster and the surrounding areas we're, we're very fortunate <clears throat> so um so that's really interesting. There were a couple other of your studies that I read, and um, there was one called The Effect of Motor Resource Suppression on Speech mm. Perception in Noise in Younger and Older Listeners. Yeah. Now, Elise wasn't involved in that one. No. <laughs> so, but Kate, Kate Slade was, and she's also one of the co-authors of our paper. Yeah, so Kate Slade um, was working as the uh, postdoctoral research associate on the, the grant that contains the TMS study, and she's recently moved into a faculty position, and Elise is actually working as a postdoctoral research associate alongside finishing up a thesis. So Elise is very much intermixed into this work as well. But yeah, this, this was an online study that we did during COVID where we explored the role of the motor system in supporting speech perception and how that role might change um, with age. Yeah. Yeah. Can you give us a, a summary of what you found? Yeah, sure. So we found that um, 
when um, individuals were listening to different types of speech um, and having to do a, a task alongside that, so it was kind of a dual task paradigm, um, when they were engaging in a task called articulatory suppression, whilst also listening to speech and trying to identify the speech, articulatory suppression was a task where they had to say a word, which was the um, and the idea of articulatory suppression is it it soaks up your motor resources, or occupies your motor resources. The idea being that if those motor resources are then occupied, the speech perception system can't draw from them to support the identification of the speech that you're listening to, because those motor resources are occupied through you physically having to articulate this um, word there. And that um, was was quite difficult for the younger listeners. Um, and they found that their performance was adversely affected when they were engaged in that specific articulatory suppression task compared to if they were just passively listening without any um, articulatory suppression task. But the older adults um, performed equiv equivalently across conditions. And we wondered if that might mean that in general, there is less opportunity for the older adults to draw from these additional speech motor resources um, during speech perception. So whilst the younger adults have them to draw from, um, the older adults may not, and that might reflect a, a general reduction of resources kind of across the board, um, so at least in the sample that we studied um, online. So so what would be what would be the clinical significance of this? Um, so I suppose in terms of the clinical significance, it wasn't a, a clinical sample. Everybody was was cognitively normal. We 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 didn't have anybody with cognitive decline. But I suppose if you were to try to draw out what is meaningful from this, it suggests that when we're listening and communicating, we use a, a broad network of brain areas and the motor system may be one such area that we use to support that process. And as we age, we have fewer resources to draw from. So I guess circling back to Elise's points around scaffolding and trying to ensure that we have compensatory scaffolding processes available to draw from as we age, then clinically, what we need to be doing is ensuring that we're building that scaffolding in um, older adults or, or in ourselves, mm. sort of investing before we, we get to that age bracket. Because if there is a reduction in the resources that we're going to be able to draw from, then having some some scaffolding to try and compensate is, is going to be vital in order to, to live a healthy life because in the UK we we have an increased lifespan but health span isn't increasing at the same rate as lifespan and um, so trying to match those two more closely is, is really important you know you you made me think of I was just um in the hospital this weekend running the adult medicine teaching service for the what you call registrars and yeah it struck me you know, we still have to wear masks in the hospital. Yeah. And it struck me how much the mask wearing deteriorates the communication. It really does. Yeah. And and I I and I noticed that it was dramatically worse with the older the patient, the worse it was. And mm. I I thought that it was it was just hearing, but yeah. I now as I listen to you, that that they might also be monitoring the motor movements of speech, yes, in some sort of mirror neuron fashion. Absolutely, and in, I you you may already have an awareness of this, but as individuals lose their hearing acuity auditory brain areas become more responsive to visual input. So there is cross-modal plasticity that occurs in, for example, areas such as superior temporal gyrus. And it's thought that that is there to help to disambiguate the speech um, through more visual mechanisms when that disambiguation cannot occur through purely auditory mechanisms. So if you take away those visual cues, which you might assume an older adult who has been experiencing age-related hearing loss for some time, if you take those visual cues away from them through mask wearing, then that's a real la lack of um, information that they're then being provided with to help them understand the communication situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of my PhD students, Brandon O'Hanlon, is currently working on 
um, investigating if we can combine auditory and tactile inputs um, for instances such as this, where there's no visual information available. And if we can train the brain to understand what tactile inputs mean with regards to the um, analogous kind of representation in the auditory modality um, to see if that's a way in which we can sort of support communication and support speech perception. Yeah. Fascinating. It's yeah. interesting because we live in a siloed world and the infectious disease department is in charge of masking mm -hmm. and they have no understanding of the communication and psychological impact of masking. That, yeah. that all they care about is sp spreading germs. Mm -hmm. And yeah. 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 Everybody comes from their own perspective, don't they? And in the UK, it's quite common that some of the tests that you might encounter in hospital, um, for example, the sort of mini mental state exams, um, the various cognitive decline assessments that you might have performed at your bedside are often delivered by somebody speaking from behind a mask with background noise um, in terms of the sounds of the hospital ward um, or perhaps in a GP office where there's also different types of background noise. And if somebody has a significant hearing loss, there's evidence to suggest that that can then present as cognitive decline because we've not actually been able to engage with the activity fully because of the sensory impairment and that their low test score indicates a sensory impairment and not a, a, a generic cognitive decline impairment. So there's some really interesting work being done um, by colleagues in um, Manchester where they're trying to create visual alternatives with some of these tests to ensure they're not confounded by um, auditory processing and deterioration of, of hearing. But it's really important. And, and people, as I say, people think from their own corner of the, the universe, which is understandable because mm -hmm. as academics, you get very bogged down in, in the um, nitty gritty of your research area. And it's important that we consider different perspectives and, and how things can affect, you know, as you mentioned with the mask wearing, yes, infectious diseases and reducing transmission is, is paramount, but there are indirect consequences um, as well. Right, right. And, and, you know, we wear these surgical masks, which I read in one study, reduce spread by 7%. Mm -hmm as opposed to N95s, which are very effective. Mm. And mm -hmm. so I wonder, at this stage in the post-pandemic, if the 7% is worth it, is worth yeah. these other things that you and I are yeah. concerned with. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so if you had unlimited funding, what's the study that you would do next? Oh, I think Elise, I'm sure there are studies that you would like to do because <laughs> when Elise started her PhD, it was approximately six months before the first kind of lockdown period began in the UK. So Elise's empirical work has been heavily disrupted by restrictions to, to testing. So Elise, what did you hope to do in, in your PhD that you've not been able to do? Because I, I suppose that would be, I suppose that's the thing that you would be uh, wanting to pursue. Yeah, so I was very interested in looking at biomarkers um, and neurocognitive markers of uh, Parkinson's disease. So can we, uh, like, how can we diagnose it sooner and maybe, like, provide treatment sooner? And also, can we, um, so the first part of the study would be, like, um, well, basically looking at, like, brain networks and the relationship in Parkinson's disease and, like, can we use these brain functional networks using EEG to like detect um, Parkinson's maybe earlier on and also can we use TMS um, to stimulate like uh, the dorsal prefrontal lateral cortex um, to like um, increase like or um, like as Helen mentioned before like boost the brain um, to help people uh, with Parkinson's disease and also looking at lifestyle um, experiences. But um, <laughs> that was all because um, for those kind of studies, clinical studies, um, you need like um, NHS ethics and it took quite a while and they falsified education as well. Um, but like 
the coolest thing would be to take a lifestyle or lifespan approach of course and that needs a lot of resources yeah. where we look at like from people from like when they're born to like when they basically like pass to see like okay what did they do during their life and like um what did they did they age like healthily or did they develop like some neurodegenerative disease like alzheimer's and parkinson's disease because for example parkinson's disease often the um causes unknown hence it's called idiopathic parkinson's disease and um still the main risk factor for that is age but obviously like there must some something must be at play why some people develop parkinson's disease and others don't and i think in order to like figure that out and untangle like why and how we need that lifespan approach but um that's very difficult <laughs> with the resources we normally um get and also of course like people's willingness as well um to stay in a study for their whole life plus mm -hmm. i won't be able to survive the whole study probably <laughs> either but it would be really cool <laughs> unless there were some developments in modern medicine Elise we could yeah. freeze you. we could freeze you for a while and then yes pull you out <laughs> in a few decades. <laughs> yeah yeah you know um we're doing something um more modest than that which is we're gathering life stories of people mm -hmm. and we're making estimates of behavior based on their life stories estimates of these factors and mm -hmm. and which is why i was so drawn to computer simulation modeling because you know it it minimizes noise because you create these series of differential equations that mm -hmm. of you know maybe 5000 equations that you solve iteratively um, 1200 times and you know in that respect you can take relatively crude assessments and potentially make predictions so that's what we're working on here at the University of Maine and uh, that was the kind of work that I presented at the Alzheimer's disease conference um, but it's not as sexy as drug development or biomarkers. Yeah. It depends on your audience. I like the sound of what you're doing. I'd be really interested to see your poster, actually. I don't know whether there's a copy um, that yeah. you're able to share. But it... Copy, absolutely. I will, I will make a, a note to do that. And, and the ne next year's conference, which I hope to go to, is in Lisbon. Oh, lovely. Mm. Yes, yeah. which, which is a place I've always wanted to visit. And perhaps, Elise, I will see you there because <laughs> there is so much on biomarkers. For mm. cannot believe the, the amount of, of information on biomarkers for Parkinson's. That will be really interesting. Yeah. 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 So if you go, please email me and we can meet for coffee <laughs> yeah that sounds like fun <laughs> right right so in the last few minutes um what have you not said that you that people would really love to hear <laughs> so I'd like to say go go get your hearing tested mm. um that's really really important as I said earlier in the podcast often people live with a significant hearing loss for 10 years before seeking any help and there's a lot of stigma around discussing and disclosing hearing loss compared to say visual loss people are far more accepting to um have their sight tested and, and to accept glasses than they are for, for hearing loss because of stigmatism around aid, hearing aids and ageism. Um, but it's incredibly important because it's a significant modifiable factor for cognitive decline in dementia. So if people take up hearing aids, that can help to restore social communication and interaction. It can improve um, mental well-being um, and it will also reintroduce some sensory input into brain areas that have lost some sensory input over a number of years 
So that's a really important message that I'd like to share in the context of our conversation around cognitive decline and dementia. And Mrs. Reynolds, sorry. Well, I think you make a really important point that general practitioners should be more assertive and aggressive in doing hearing testing. Mm -hmm. And and probably um, audiology should be moved into the GP surgery and not mm -hmm. kept in a separate facility. Which, you know, anytime something is in a separate facility, it makes it so incredibly unlikely that people will go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it just, again, it all comes down to the the behavior change and how significant that effort is, you know, perceived to be by the individual. Um, but yeah, Elise, was there anything else that you wanted to add? I think from one of the studies we did, um, I would, <laughs> in line with something Helen said, like, don't wait till, like, you're older and then think, like, oh, we'll then start moving and learning and stuff because, like, um, I can wait till um, to build my reserve or whatever. Um, it's actually very important to start in, um, uh, even at a young age because mm -hmm. um, studies also show that um, people who engage in like um, physical activity at a young age that has an effect at cognition in uh, later life. So mm -hmm. um, like every life stage is important and um, definitely, yeah. Definitely, yeah. I, I really agree with that. Yeah, and reducing kind of inflammatory um, mm -hmm. markers and improving kind of vasculature and blood flow. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, there was a researcher at Mayo Clinic who was studying um, the role of of glucose in cognitive decline. Mm. At, at some point, she declared that um, she ran out and joined a gym and began to exercise. Rosebud something was her name. And she began to exercise an hour a day because she said, yeah. oh my God, this is where it's at. So yeah. if we could only do more of that, you know? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Even just walking. Even just walking. Just yeah. There's Some a, moderate walking. There's a marvelous video, which you guys may have seen, called 23 and a Half. And it's by a, a GP from Toronto. And he challenges people to only be sedentary for 23 and a half hours a day. And he shows them the amazing benefits of walking for half an hour. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's the guidance as well. Um, half an hour activity each day. But yeah, that's cool. Yeah, well, here in the US, we're more extreme. The Surgeon General says an hour of exercise every day. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank you guys. Maybe if people spend an hour, they might. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. It was really fun. I hope I didn't talk too much because I haven't to do that. Yeah. For joining me no thank you thank you it was really fun it was it was lovely to talk to you and we really appreciate you inviting us and giving us this opportunity to discuss our work and our thoughts about research and where things should go so thank you very much um it was a pleasure yeah definitely and um i found um the model part also very interesting and like how that improved yeah. your predictions that was really really cool yeah i'll, I'll send you yeah. my posters yes please that would be really great and maybe and I, I hope we can yeah may we meet in lisbon next yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes. or mm -hmm. in the uh, in pen uh, not in penrith in lancaster <laughs> ah yeah <laughs> we're, we're gonna walk the west highland way again mm -hmm. from north to south instead of south to north nice <laughs> october Very because good. Great. because i want to i'm really I really want to be at the Winter Durving Festival in Penrith, which I highly recommend. It celebrates bringing the sheep down 
from the highlands to the lowlands. Really? And I haven't heard of that festival, but that sounds very fun. It's very fun. And it's it's the last sun Saturday, I think, in October. And by the way, my background is the West Highland Way. I was about to ask, what what drew you to Penrith? Do you have links there through family or one of one of our great friends is a GP in Penrith. And so we've been going, we've been doing workshops and programs with her around um narrative medicine and and uh, things like that for 20 years. Nice. And so we 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 just my wife and I we just like to go visit our friends. <laughs> and yeah. yeah. <laughs> with excuses for doing so. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's so I will turn off the recording. Mm-hmm. Let's see how to do that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I should have stopped the sharing much earlier. <laughs>